Have you ever felt like your students were disengaged because their textbook was so boring? Today, we're going to talk about ways you can ditch that textbook and bring authentic learning experiences to students. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskel. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, We'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Matt Miller is an educator, blogger, and the author of Ditch That Textbook a book about revolutionizing the classroom with innovative teaching, mindsets, and curriculum. Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be on this show with the two, of, two people, two of my favorite people on the planet on this same show. This is amazing. So Matt, let's, let's talk a little bit about your book, Ditch That Textbook. Uh, and let's start with the obvious question. What is wrong with textbooks? Oh my goodness, wow. We are gonna start right out the gate here. All right, what is wrong with textbooks? Well, um, I'll give you some of the traditional lines that I've, I've trotted out for a while now that, you know, obviously what, textbooks are sort of the picture of one size fits all education. Um, a lot of times, at least in some cases, they're outdated from the moment that they hit students' desks. They're inflexible. You can't write on them. You can't share within them. They're not very easily personalizable. I mean, I can go kind of down the list of all of that. And um, I, I think, well, the both of you are good examples of this. And a lot of other people that I've met are good examples of how we can either use the textbook just as a resource every once in a while if we want to, or we can find better ways to educate children than to try to, you know, just go out of these sort of sanitized, mass-produced uh, books of, of stuff that don't really inspire kids. You know, in the four years that I've taught science right here in the science lab that I'm in now, the only time that we've ever used textbooks is to either prop up bridges that we were building or to, you know, use as dominoes that we were knocking down, right? You know, yes. they still have a use, but it's not for the, the traditional purposes that, uh, that we normally They're use. They're almost more like building blocks than they are like educational resources. Yes, absolutely. I and love that. And they're perfect if you need to like press something down. If you're doing mm -hmm. a folding kind of project, they're great for that one too. Especially, I love, yeah. especially social studies. They're extra thick. <laughs> yes, that's true. I love you guys so much for all of that. And Mike, can I just touch on this real quick that you said it, you've always thought that it limits teacher creativity. And that's so, so true. You know, I think that word creative as an adjective and even sometimes as a noun, you know, you talk about creatives. Um, people who, you know, it's usually by somebody on the outside looking in saying they are a creative or they're so creative. And I think sometimes teachers are afraid of that word or they just don't like it or like they have this repulsive reaction to it because they think that they are inherently not creative. They're not one of those types of people. But there is creativity like oozing out of teachers all the time every single day. You know, you think about 
the way that a teacher explains something for a second time when the kids don't get it the first time and they have to improvise on the fly and come up with it. Or a teacher goes to the board and they draw out an impromptu diagram to help kids process what it is that they're talking about. Or they view and take in all of the cues that the students are giving and figure out how they feel about it and they decide on the fly to try to change things around. That's creative teaching. And I don't know why we're so afraid of this word creative. I think that we just assume that we have to get out like our art supplies and our sculpting kits to turn in, you know, to create lessons. But the reality is that we're doing that all the time. And I think just like what you said, we've got to look at teaching through a different lens. I'm, I'm working on a new keynote speech now where I liken teaching to a couple of different things. I say teaching, you know, teachers very much are like scientists. You know, they, they come up with a hypothesis and they test it out. And it's not expected to work right the first time. But if it does, great. If it doesn't, there's a lot that we can learn from and improve. And um, teachers are like inventors. You know, if you think about inventors, they see the world in a different way than it looks right now. And they want to bring that into being. And so they're the ones, even in the face of doubters sometimes, will, will create those ideas. And then I also, I also say, because I'm a big Top Gun fan, Teachers are like fighter pilots. And I, I think about Maverick and Top Gun, you know, and he was a risk taker. He tried things that were out of the ordinary and he got in trouble for it sometimes. But in the end, that risk taking ended up, I know in a big Hollywood ending, his risk taking ended up saving the world. And that's what set him apart and why his superiors picked him to go on that really important mission. It's because he was willing to try things that were outside of the norm. And you said teacher creativity and it just sparked this flurry of all of these ideas coming out of my head. And I, I think that is so totally uh, on the right track. Well, and there's a piece of that that you mentioned, the risk taking. And by the way, Mike, I'll be the goose to your maverick. That's it. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, Matt, you also speak of this idea of wanting to take risks. And I think mm -hmm. that is a really difficult space for teachers to navigate because they feel like they have to have permission in order to take a risk. Right. What guidance or suggestions do you have for that? Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's so true. And, you know, I think we have to look at what kind of risks we're talking about here. We're not talking about the kind of risks that Maverick had to go up against in Top Gun. You know, um, people's lives weren't at jeopardy. The, the, freedom, you know, the, the survival of the free world is not at stake here. Uh, nobody's going to live or die based on all of this. What I'm talking about are instructional risks. You know, are trying something outside of our comfort zone where we don't know exactly how it's going to go. We have it, it's like it goes from that moment when you get that initial spark. You see something and all of a sudden you go, oh, that could make an amazing lesson. That has so much potential, you know. It's like it goes from that moment to, for me, it always goes to the next place of, oh, but what if it doesn't go over the way that I hope that it's going to? You know, there's, there's some risk here. And by definition, risks mean, risk means that things could go wrong. And then you start trying to put it together the best way that you can to avoid some of that stuff. And you try it. And it's like, that's kind of the whole risk. That's the whole like process, I think, of trying to take those instructional risks. And when you ask for guidance, Diane, there's one thing that I think we need to wrap our brains around when it comes to these risks. And it's this, I think we need to reframe how risky the risk really is. 
And here's what I mean by that, that a lot of times when we don't take instructional risks, we are playing it safe. And when we play it safe, we are playing to our own personal safety. We are playing to what makes us comfortable, what's in our wheelhouse, what is good for us as the teacher. And when we play it safe, a lot of times we go back to those traditional instructional strategies, things that make us feel comfortable that don't always engage kids. And that's the problem. And sometimes our safe lessons bore our students to tears or we feel like that's the way that teaching is and that's the way that we're supposed to do it. And when you look at it through that lens, you start to realize these things that made me feel safe, that I thought was safe teaching, you might be able to say that that's actually risky teaching. Because if we set our students up through those traditional means, and I'm not saying all traditional means are bad, but some of the traditional means that aren't getting those same results that they did or that we in our minds thought that they did. If we set them up for failure in that way, that sounds risky to me. But then you look at it on the other side of the coin, we start to take some of those instructional risks. We try something new where we're not sure how it's gonna go, but it is so different to what kids are used to seeing. And it plays into their interests and their curiosity. And now all of a sudden we have their wrapped, undivided attention in class. And all of a sudden that thing that we think is risky where we're not sure how it's gonna go, we have that attention. You know, if kids check out on that other stuff, if they're not even paying attention, they might as well not be there. How much learning is going to come out of that? But when we take those instructional risks, all of a sudden we have their total undivided attention. And even if it doesn't go the way that we want it to, we have that, that crucial attention. And I think that's huge. And to me, those kinds of risks are not risky at all. To me, that's safe teaching. I love every bit of that. <laughs> that, is, that is fantastic. And w one of the things that I've really been diving into deeply in, in the talks that I've been giving in the workshops and, and even in my own classroom lately is this idea that we learn in our pre-service teacher classes that we should take the content we're supposed to teach and then find great ways to teach it well. And that seems to be the way that teachers normally go about doing things. And because of that, we fall back on these structured textbook lessons that are given to us that are supposedly the best way that we can teach this content, right? And right. in reality, it turns off most of your class because it's boring, right? It's boring stuff. But if we flipped that model and we said to our teachers, think about the most incredible, the most engaging, uh, the, the most exciting opportunity that you can give your students to learn and give them that experience. And then as a teacher, it is your professional duty. You've been trained to do this. Take that amazing experience and find ways to teach the things you're supposed to, right? If yes. we did it that way, kids would be on fire. They would be breaking down the door to get into your classroom and they will never forget that lesson. And sometimes you may not get the exact content you were supposed to teach that first time and you may have to go back and reteach that content a little bit. But for the most part, those kids are never gonna forget that lesson and the things that you do talk about, they will never forget. Yeah. That's, that's so true. In fact, you know, um, <laughs> I feel like we're on the, same, on the same wavelength here on my next uh, big project that I'm working on. So I'm, I'm working on my third, actually what will be my 
fourth book because I'm co-authoring another one. That's a whole different story. But um, I'm, I'm working on a book um, that is going to kind of follow in the footsteps of Dave Burgess's book, Teach Like a Pirate. This is going to be the technology-focused version of that called Tech Like a Pirate. And one of the big things that Dave says in Teach Like a Pirate that I love that has always stuck with me is um, don't just teach a lesson, create an experience. It's the exact same thing you were talking about there, Mike, because, you know, the experiences are the things that will stick with them forever. And that's kind of the idea. You know, we want, we want these lessons, these ideas that they learn in our classes to stick with them. And when you say take an amazing experience and find a way to teach in that way, that is totally on pace with, with that exact same idea. And I think you're exactly right. If we focus on it through that lens, instead of, you know, the, the opposite, as you described, then, you know, I think right there, that's, that's the mindset we, that we need. And um, yeah, that's, that's half the battle, I think. Well, and then you're bringing up the idea of engagement. And I think there's a misconception, or maybe that's not the word, but I think there's an overuse of this word of engagement. And there's been this idea that if we put a computer in front of a kid that's engaging, no, the teacher is the engagement, that's a tool. But how do we get people to realize, or let me ask you this a little better. What does engagement look like in the mind of a student in a classroom where really engaging things are happening? What, how does that, what's the appearance of that? You know, to me, if we're, we're just looking at it from the student's perspective for now, um, to me, I think it mirrors a lot the idea of flow. You know, flow is that, that idea where, you know, you start to lose track of space and time and you get so focused into what you're doing that you don't even realize. And when, when that state happens, all of a sudden our brain is super pumped, like super primed for learning. Like it's, it's totally, totally connected. And I think kids may not tell you, if they asked, if you asked a student what is engaging learning, you know, they'd probably say that it's something that's fun or something that makes them laugh or, you know, something like that. I think that true engagement is a lot to do with, is a lot to do with that anyway. And so I think whatever we can do to create that kind of, that kind of atmosphere, that's, and, and I, I think what you said was so important too, that sometimes we get a wrong definition uh, in our minds at least of engagement and like you said sometimes we think and I think that you can even go this way with the word innovation too you know like um, if yeah. we use technology that's going to be engaging or that's going to be innovative or if kids have a fun time in class that's engagement and to some extent you know it depends on your definition of engagement that may be sort of true but to me, true, useful engagement, the kind of engagement that deserves to be in the classroom is the kind where students have a blast, where students are in that flow state and they're getting some sort of academic gain out of it. You know, I think to me, that's, that's the true definition of engagement is are they learning and are they doing so in a fun or authentic or meaningful way? Yeah, I, I like that definition. Before we continue the show, We'd like to take a few seconds to share with you the sponsor that's made this episode possible. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much Diane and I love GoToScience. I don't know about you, Diane, but I am totally jealous that Beth and Curtis have been traveling around Australia, preparing to take GoToScience learners on an incredible new adventure. 
Truly. I want to go to Australia, you know? <laughs> the world needs more critical thinkers, problem solvers, and curious lifelong learners. And that's exactly what our friends at GoToScience are creating by empowering our youngest learners. This is why we're excited to announce that we will be giving away another year-long subscription to GoToScience to a lucky listener. Here's how to win. Between now and February 1st, subscribe to the Education for a Better World podcast on either iTunes or Google Play. Then tag us and GoToScience in a tweet, and then share with us why you want a free GoToScience subscription. Then in early February, we'll choose at random someone and give them a one-year subscription to GoToScience. It's that easy. Good luck. If you've listened to our other shows, you know that Diane and I are really passionate about helping students and teachers create amazing learning experiences in school. We've worked with educators around the globe to elevate their teaching and to innovate in their classrooms. That's why we've created a brand new workshop that will empower your teachers to help students learn more. By more, we mean that the learning will be motivating, organic, relevant, and experiential. We will help teachers find easy to implement strategies for making learning come alive in their classrooms so that students love learning, know how to apply it to the world outside school, and remember what they learned. No matter what age or content area you teach, the Learn More philosophy and the strategies we'll share will help your teachers connect incredible learning experiences to their curriculum. By empowering students and teachers, we can truly use education to make the world a better place. To send us an inquiry about our Learn More workshops or any of the other keynote or workshop offerings that Diane and I can provide, visit the podcast website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, the number four, betterworld.com. We hope to see you in person soon. Now let's return to the show. What I've come across is that piece of brain, brain science, that piece of neuroscience that tells us that students can't learn unless they have an emotional connection to the content they're learning, right? Mm -hmm. And the engagement that we're talking about is an emotional connection with the learning that's going on not just an, an emotional engagement with the classroom atmosphere, right? Because you can have a really fun game where kids don't learn anything. It's that emotional attachment, that, that emotional connection to the learning that's taking place in the classroom. So all three of us are on board, right? We, we yes. all agree with this. This is what we do in our classrooms. We're all about this. Let's talk a little bit about that, uh, that teacher who is in the first couple of years of their career and is really relying on the textbook to get them through, or even the teacher that's been doing this for a long time and because of the system they're in, you know, teaching with fidelity, the program that their district has bought is, is something that they've been doing for the past couple of years and breaking away from that is difficult. What are some steps that you would give that teacher to start moving in this direction? Ah, okay, good question. So, um, and, and let, me, let me clarify something on the idea of, because we keep talking about ditching textbooks. I mean, I wrote a book called Ditch That Textbook. That's the name of my blog. It's on a bunch of shirts that I wear, you know. So um, maybe, maybe I can clarify this a little bit. Um, when I say ditch that textbook, I'm not necessarily saying that textbooks are evil in and of themselves and that we shouldn't use them. Because again, like I was saying earlier, a textbook is a resource. And the last thing I want to do is take resources out of the hands of teachers and students. Um, but I think there's so much more that we can do than that. Now, as far as um, 
as far as as far as that early teacher goes that you were talking about earlier, you know, um, maybe in the first year or two, um, if they feel like they need something to give their their curriculum or their direction a little bit of structure. I could see using it for structure. You know, I mean, I needed that from the beginning to know kind of like what order your scope and sequence almost, you know, like what, what direction are we supposed to be going and making sure we're, we're going there. Um, maybe even for ideas, but I've started to see that beyond that, you know, I think, I think the big key, if you want to break away from the textbook is to learn about your kids and to learn what motivates them and what gets them interested. I think when you look at your material, when you look at whatever it is that students are gonna be learning, you look at what is inherently interesting about that and what are the big picture life lessons that we have to learn from it. I mean, there's, there's so many you know, great works of literature that kids read coming through school and the reason we want them to learn it is because there are valuable life lessons in it. And when we miss on that, then I think, you know, what's the point of having done it? So some of those core things, once you get a handle on what those are and what, and kind of like what motivates and interests your students, now you're starting to get the building blocks to create those creative lessons that you were talking about, Mike, where you can start to tinker with and find things that you think those kids are going to love. And then I think when you want to start to do that, start small start with something little maybe one little activity one part of a day's lesson you know for me having taught on the high school level my whole career um you know this may be a little 15 minute activity out of your 45 minute class um <laughs> I, I i read something by uh john spencer who is the author of launch and has a really great blog and great social media channels and everything he says if if you want to try something new if you want to experiment with something different a great time to do that is at the end of the semester you know, like um, he always jokes, whenever the, the class across the hall is watching Frosty the Snowman, that is the time to try something that you want to experiment with, you know, um, or maybe a lesson that you already know you're not thrilled about, where, you know, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, it can't get any worse than this. So why don't we try something different? You know, um, I think you pick out a little something like that. You start small and you try to build something that really connects with your students or answers one of those juicy questions about life. And um, whenever you're able to put st that stuff together, you just sort of like do it little by little. I love how um, Vicki Davis, who writes the Cool Cat Teacher blog and has for years and years and years, I heard her say once, you want to innovate like a turtle. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, pick just little bits, little bits at a time where you, you change things. And then what's great about innovating like that is if you do it in little small pieces, you start to validate what you're doing. And if you can see gains and results in that little piece, that kind of gives you the permission. Diane, you were talking about permission, um, about how you know, teachers are, are looking for that permission to innovate. I think when you do a little bitty piece and you see the results in it. And results don't have to be test scores. They don't have to be seen in the grade book. You can see results in a lot of different ways. You start to build the case for that innovation. And then you take that next step. Maybe that next step is bigger or maybe it's similar to that last one. And then you see results there and you take another step. And if the results don't come in the next step, 
you know, sort of reverse engineer it and figure out why, go back in and try something else. And little by little, you start to build on those steps until you're starting to create that um, curriculum of your dreams or that instruction of your dreams that really truly feels like you. And you start to find your teacher voice that way, I think. Exactly. And I've been kind of on a, a campaign as well to say, if all of this is true in the classroom, then all of this is true in teacher professional learning. Yes. And I really believe that there has to be a significant switch if we're going to have teachers have the ability to create these engaging, powerful, intrinsic, motivated, motivating moments. You need to have that in your own professional learning as a teacher as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So what, would you, what do you believe is great teacher PD? Great teacher PD. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've done so much PD over the last few years. Um, I know what I've, I've seen both sides of it. I know both of you have seen both sides of it and everybody listening to this has probably seen both sides of it. Um, and it sort of depends on who you are, I guess, as to what you think great teacher PD is. But I think there are a few sort of immutable laws of good PD. And um, one of them I think has to be, um, the ability to be hands-on and interactive and to actually try it out. Um, I know early on when I was doing professional development, I would talk about these really cool ideas and then people would um, go away and would basically not feel empowered to do it. And I would be able to get through, let's just put an arbitrary number on it. Let's say I could get through 30 new ideas and one full day workshop. And I'd think, oh my goodness, I just filled their buckets full of ideas. They're going to go and they're going to change the world in their classes. And what happens is those 30 sort of half-baked ideas where I know exactly what I'm talking about, they don't end up having anything that sticks. But if I cut that 30 down to 10 or 8 or something like that and I give them time to actually do it, now, all of a sudden, they've done it with their own two hands and seen it with their own two eyes and they've experienced it and they know how it works. They've done it from the student's perspective. They're able to reflect on it from the teacher's perspective. Now, all of a sudden, they really own that. And I would rather have teachers really, truly own eight good ideas than to hear in passing about 30 different ideas. And so I think um, keeping keeping yourself to a manageable number of ideas and giving them lots of opportunities to participate and actively try those ideas. I could go on and on and on and I can go on to more if you'd like, but I think those are two of the really important ones. So one word comes to mind as you're explaining that, and it's something that I know is that Diane is one of the best in the world at doing when she works with teachers and that's experiential learning. Yeah. It's, I mean, that, that I think that term encompasses everything that we're talking about here. If we want, teachers to be able to create amazing experiences for kids. We have got to give teachers incredible learning experiences themselves mm -hmm. so that they, mm -hmm. can, they can replicate that. Um, and you know, I'm sorry, can, yeah, I, can yeah. I throw one more thing in there that I think if we want teachers to be able to create those kinds of experiences, you okay. said we've got to give them those kinds of experiences too. Can I, can I throw one more thing in here that I think is super, super important that a lot of times gets left out? Time. This scares teacher, this scares school leaders to death, I think, sometimes. But we've got to give teachers time. Um, from, for, for years, whenever I've worked with teachers, um, whenever I ask them, what are the biggest barriers to doing the kind of 
stuff that you really want to do, the things that you want to try. There's a variety of different answers that I hear, but the one resounding thing over and over and over again is time. And I think that so often school leaders fear, just as teachers fear with their students a lot of times, that they can't control and manipulate that. And they can't make for absolute certain that 100% of their teachers are not abusing that time. Just like so often, you know, teachers will not try new creative, innovative ideas because they're not certain that 100% of their students will not abuse it. But I think whenever you give a little bit of that release and you let people show what they know and a little bit more of their way, um, they really appreciate that time and they really validate having that time. And, you know, to be totally honest, my belief about all of that is that if you sit them down in professional development for eight hours in a day and you count seat time because that's something that you can count, the same ones that will sit there and will mentally check out and will text and will play Candy Crush during professional development are the same ones that are going to abuse that time. But if you give them that time to work, those same ones that abuse are probably still going to be the abusers, but the ones that really want it are going to do amazing things with it. So, sorry, little side rant there, but I think teachers, if we're talking about professional development, I think teachers have to have time. Yeah, I wholeheartedly I agree. Yes. All of us do. I, I don't, I don't, I think that sidebar is, is excellent because I think if you, if you take that ladder approach and you create a system where teachers are advancing through inspiration rather than coercion. Yes. Those, those teachers who are going to be inspired and are going to run with that are going to create a culture where the others are going to be swimming upstream, right? Those people who are playing Candy Crush and are, uh, and are you know, time wasters or, or not in it, um, you know, not taking things seriously, you want to make them swim upstream, right? Instead of the ones who are really excited about learning and excited about growing as teachers, instead of having them in a system where they're the ones swimming upstream, you got to flip that. And the way that you do it is through inspiration. I love, I love everything you said. Matt, talk a little bit about the role of social media and how, so, you know, sometimes teachers that are looking to innovate in this way and to move out of textbooks and to give more authentic experiences for kids feel alone in the school where they are uh, because this is very much uh, a change in the, in the education system that we have. Yeah. What is the role in, of social media in helping to both inspire and give support to those kinds of teachers who are looking to change things? It's huge. I mean, in two words. It's huge. Um, I don't, I think I can say with a lot of certainty, I don't think I'm overstating this, that the support I got and the ideas that I got from social media saved my teaching career, hands down. Um, and very much the people that I met there, um, I saw Aaron Hogan, um, who you can find on social media. He is a, um, I think he's an assistant principal in College Station, Texas. He wrote a book uh, called Shattering the Perfect Teacher Myth. And he's the first one that I've heard that said, um, you know, social media might not change your life, but the people you meet there will. And that's very much the case with me. You know, um, I very much was exactly like you described. Um, I was the entire world languages department at a little bitty school in West Central Indiana. <laughs> which is a blessing and a curse, you know, it does make department meetings really easy when you are the entire department, you know. Um, however, it does very much make you feel on an island. And for me as a teacher, I didn't go through the traditional student teaching experience. I switched to teaching later on and I did my student teaching experience in my very own classroom all by myself. So I didn't learn from a master teacher. And I felt so much 
on an island. I would get to go to conferences every once in a great while, and that would um, give me that breath of fresh air, of ideas, of other people, of the connections. But I didn't get that anyplace else. And um, at some point, I went to a conference with a, a Twitter hashtag associated with it. And I started checking it out and realizing, oh my goodness, there's this whole discussion going on in the background about what the keynote speaker's saying and what people think about it. And then later on, we went to breakout sessions and I was going, oh my goodness, this is like I'm in all of the breakout sessions and I'm just sitting in one of them because people are sharing what they're learning. Come to find out, that happens 24 seven and there are channels, you know, little Twitter hashtags or uh, communities or whatever you want to use um, that are talking about this stuff all the time. You can get as much of it as you want. And that's the, that's sort of the beauty of where we are. I, that's where we, the beauty of where we are in education. I, I'm a believer that right now is a golden age of education. We have so much in the way of, research and brain science and connections to other people and the digital tools that we have available now is a superb time to be in education even though we get beaten down for a lot of different things but um social media was that lifeline that i got and i think you know <laughs> I, I like to say about social media that it's kind of like shopping at big lots and here's what i mean by that if you've ever shopped at big lots um, if you ever walk in and you have a list of things that you want to buy and you're going to go get them at Big Lots, chances are you're going to be disappointed because you don't go to Big Lots to find this list of things. Or in this case, you don't go to Twitter to find this list of lesson plans that you need to teach for next week. But if you go to Big Lots with an open mind and you start walking around and thinking about the possibilities and let them come upon you, you will find the thing that you didn't know that you were dying to have that you couldn't live without. You will find that thing that you weren't looking for when you walked in. And so I really feel like social media is, is that way in many ways. Those are, those are just a couple of my thoughts on it. All right. So we have a last question for you, Matt. And this yes. is a question we ask of all of our guests. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to stretch your thinking here because we're going to ask you to do this in only one or two sentences. Okay. okay. If you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what change would you make? I would change education to focus on the skills that students will need in the real world after they graduate instead of on academic subjects and grade levels that group them by age. Because I don't think that we can adequately prepare kids for this ever-changing world by grouping them by expiration date and sorting all of our lessons into categories of information that flow together freely. You can't sort them out that way. Anyway, that's probably the big change that I would make. That's pretty big picture thinking, but I think that's what we need. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Matt Miller for being our guest today. Credit for the show's music goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we chat with arts and textiles teacher Andrea Zafaraku,
who was named the 2018 winner of the Global Teacher Prize. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. Bye.